Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with one of the biggest stories of the week, the French protests. This is in The Independent. France protests, authorities to deploy almost 90,000 police this weekend amid fears of more riots. French authorities are bracing for the possibility of more riots and violence at planned anti-government protests this weekend. The government is deploying tens of thousands of police and security forces across the country, while in Paris, museums, theatres and shops announced they would close on Saturday as a precaution, including the iconic Eiffel Tower. Police unions and city authorities held emergency meetings to decide how to handle the protests, which are being held despite Emmanuel Macron's surrender to marchers demanding the scrapping of a planned fuel tax hike. Prime Minister Edouard Philippe told senators on Thursday the government would deploy exceptional security measures for the protests in Paris and elsewhere. Speaking on TF1 television, Mr Philippe said 89,000 police officers will be deployed on Saturday across France, up from 65,000 last weekend. In Paris alone, 8,000 police officers will be mobilised. They will be equipped with a dozen armoured vehicles, a first in a French urban area since 2005. Some yellow vest protesters, French Union officials and prominent politicians across the political spectrum called for calm on Thursday after the worst rioting in Paris in decades last weekend. Mr Macron agreed to abandon the fuel tax hike, part of his plans to combat global warming. I talk about global warming in episodes 18 and 29. But protesters' demands have now expanded to weather issues, hurting French workers, retirees and students. In a move questioned by both critics and supporters, the president has recently disappeared from public view. The prime minister reiterated the government's plan to scrap a fuel tax rise planned by the previous government because of the extreme tensions France is facing. No tax deserves to put civil peace in danger, Mr Philippe said. The rioting in Paris has worried tourists, prompting the cancellation of four French league football matches this weekend around the country and damaged the local economy at the height of the holiday shopping season. Rampaging groups last weekend threw cobblestones through Paris storefronts and looted valuables in some of the city's richest neighbourhoods. The Eiffel Tower, along with more than a dozen museums, two theatres and other cultural sites in Paris, will be closed on Saturday for security reasons. The Paris Opera has cancelled planned performances on Saturday at its two Parisian sites. Two music festivals in Paris have been postponed and the Arc de Triomphe remains closed since it was damaged in last weekend's protest which left over 130 people injured. Paris police have also ordered shops in the city's high-end Champs-Élysées area to close on Saturday as a precaution. Protests simmered on Thursday in several French regions. Scores of protesting teens clashed with police at a high school west of Paris as part of nationwide student protests over new university admissions procedures and rising administrative fees. Drivers wearing their signature yellow safety vests continued to block roads around France, expanding their demands to include broader tax cuts and wider social benefits. A small union representing police administrators called for a strike on Saturday, which could further complicate security measures. Two police union officials said they are worried that radical troublemakers from both the far right and far left will hijack Saturday's protests. Meanwhile, videos on social media of police beating protesters at a Burger King near the Champs-Élysées have stoked the protesters' anger. A police spokeswoman said on Thursday an investigation is underway into the incident and police are examining other videos circulating online for possible violations. Mr Macron, the central target of the protests, has been largely invisible all week. After winning the election overwhelmingly last year, the 40-year-old pro-business centrist has sought to make France more competitive globally. But his efforts have alienated even some supporters of 
badly explained reforms like tax cuts for the rich to spur investment in France. Many protesters feel Mr Macron has an elitist out-of-touch attitude that ignores the country's high taxes and high unemployment. They felt the increased fuel tax and particular favoured wealthy city folk who use public transportation over poorer rural residents who must drive to work or school or shops. Mr Macron does not face re-election until 2022 and his party has a strong majority in parliament but his political opponents are increasingly vocal and plan a no-confidence vote in the government next week. Mr Philippe on Thursday rejected suggestions that he resign. He stressed the lower house of parliament voted Wednesday in favour of the government's measures to roll back a gas tax hike that had fuelled the unrest. Clement Rosie, manager of a motorcycle shop in western Paris, spent two days and nights cleaning up after watching helplessly last weekend as thugs smashed his shop windows and emptied his shelves. He has boarded up the store and is among those staying closed on Saturday. This was published on the 7th of December. Mr. Rosie says, we're going to have a security company with security guards inside and outside the shop. Everything has been fenced off several times. Yet, Mr. Rosie remains sympathetic to the protest movement. Just like everybody, we're strangled financially after the 15th of the month, he says, referring to the day when many French workers are paid. The protesters, he says, are defending a cause. They're following through and rightly so. We support them wholeheartedly. What about violent troublemakers who pillage and riot? That's something else, Mr. Rosie said. And there's another article here. This is in the Daily Mail. How Emmanuel Macron hid behind the majestic walls of his presidential palace while outside Paris and his country once again erupted in fury. All day long, Emmanuel Macron skulked behind the majestic walls of his presidential palace while outside his city and his country once again erupted in fury. Not only was the Elysee Palace guarded by hundreds of riot police, but also armoured cars bearing machine guns and grenade launchers. Excessive perhaps, but few who spent any time in Paris yesterday would doubt that but for this formidable ring of steel, the mob would have surely tried to storm inside. Not only was the Elysee Palace guided by hundreds of riot police, but also armored cars bearing machine guns and grenade launchers. Excessive perhaps, but few who spent any time in Paris yesterday would doubt that but for this formidable ring of steel, the mob would have surely tried to storm inside. This was published on the 9th of December. It was a day of reckoning, a day of insurrection, and this time the revolutionary spirit was catching. There were also disturbances in Marseille, France's second city, and in Brussels. In Paris around mid-morning, three tear gas capsules rolled to a halt at the feet of a group of yellow vest protesters milling outside the Flora Denica Brasserie on the Champs-Élysées. The men appeared to scarcely register this attempt to disperse them. A few peeled away, not with any sense of urgency, but with determined insouciance. In other words, walked away casually as if running would show weakness. Eventually, someone picked up the canister and tossed it back at police. Another was booted away, and as it spun down the boulevard, a light breeze caught the smoke, lifting it above the trees festooned with Christmas lights. Take that, Macron, cried one protester. The yellow vests were originally worn by workers upset about petrol tax increases, declining living standards and diminished rights, but their protest has since swelled into a massive amorphous rebellion. The demands of interest groups vary, but all are united in wanting both Mr Macron's resignation and an emergency election. It seemed to matter not to protesters that the government promised to suspend fuel tax increases for at least six months to defuse the rioting, the first U-turn by Macron since he came to power in 2017. Then he saved France from the populist tide. Cast as the saviour of Europe and a visionary in the JFK mould, he was the leader who some joked could walk on water. Yet as his presidential term unfolded and he surrounded himself with a team of technocrats, technocrats are like bureaucrats in a way, they are designed to be those that will run the world in the 
planned world government I've talked about before, which will operate with basically the same structure as the European Union, but on a global level. Yet, as his presidential term unfolded and he surrounded himself with a team of technocrats, he was accused of ignoring the masses. His tax policy, it was argued, made him the president of the rich. His approval ratings plummeted. And last week, Macron was bitterly criticised for choosing to stay out of the public eye, preferring instead to hold closed-door meetings in the Elysee Palace, seen by many as his ivory tower. Sheltering from tear gas in the doorway of a bank, one protester, Samuel 28, said, Make no mistake, Macron has become the focus of anger, and I cannot see all this ending until he fails. What you are seeing here today is a little revolution. Whether it gets bigger, only time will tell. But just after dawn, the first protesters headed for the Arc de Triomphe defaced during the previous week's demonstration. They found it ringed with police cars and vans and officers clad in protective clothing standing sternly behind riot shields. The authorities clearly were not taking any chances. Elsewhere, there had already been 350 arrests and it was still only breakfast. Baseball bats, hammers and gas canisters were confiscated. Metal batanque balls, basically like bowls, balls were found, adding a Gallic touch to the arsenal. By mid-morning, though, the insurrection still felt benign. In the Avenue de Lina, linking the Arc de Triomphe and the Eiffel Tower, a man and his son kicked a ball around. A few cafes offered breakfast. Paris was going about its business, or at least trying to. On the Avenue Kleber, which was heavily targeted last week, its residents' luxury cars torched. Nervousness prevailed. Some were vacating the Grand Old Apartment buildings and heading off to stay with friends and family. We thought that nothing could be as bad as last Saturday, said 39-year-old Fusia Robert, an investment banker, but we are told that today will be as bad, possibly more violent. I'm going to the country. At that moment, 21 riot police vans began thundering past. Madame Robert shook her head and drew a deep breath. Nearby, a youth dressed in black standing on a street corner hurled an unidentified missile at the convoy. It was the queue for the waiters of nearby Café Bloy which had been valiantly declaring business as usual to shut its doors. Much of Paris looked like a ghost town, with museums and stores closed on what should have been a busy pre-Christmas shopping day. Tourists were scarce and residents were advised to stay home if possible. Dozens of streets were closed to traffic while the Eiffel Tower and museums such as the Louvre, Musée d'Orsay and the Centre Pompidou were shut. At midday on the Champs-Élysées, now filled with clouds of tear gas, thousands were squaring up to the riot police who stopped them, marching on Macron's palace. Having first boxed the protesters into the boulevard, officers later chased them into side streets. High above, disappearing in and out of grey clouds, a police helicopter circled. As it did in previous weeks, the middle of the afternoon brought sinister elements onto the front line. The chanting suddenly gave way to violence. By nightfall, protesters were back on the Champs-Élysées, fighting pitched battles with police among the Christmas lights. In response to tear gas, they let off flares. This is what happens when you govern against your people, said a bearded protester. It's a lesson for Macron, but I think it's when he may have learned too late. Nearly 500 miles away in Marseille, police brought armoured vehicles onto the streets as a 2,000-strong protester and violent. The city centre was taken over by marauding gangs of youths as they smashed bank windows, looted and set Christmas trees ablaze. In Brussels, protesters threw paving stones, road signs, fireworks, flares and other objects at police blocking their entry to an area where government buildings and parliament are located. We're seeing now people in Europe and America for that matter becoming increasingly fed up with the political system and the political spectrum. They're seeing that it doesn't represent the people. And just on that point, here's an article in The Independent. The yellow vests are a compelling and dangerous movement and they are spreading across Europe. A French government capitulating to widespread rioting on the streets of Paris and other major cities and towns is nothing new. 
the modern republic is built on revolution and street violence has long been viewed as an acceptable reaction to unpopular policies. What makes President Emmanuel Macron's U-turn on green surcharges on the price of fuel so humiliating, however, is that it happens so quickly. The gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, named after the high visibility jackets that all motorists have to carry in France and which they now all wear with pride, only began demonstrating on the 17th of November. Now they have already forced what was once considered a young, dynamic French administration to run up the white flag. Not only that, but they have also given succour, in other words, assistance to similar movements across Europe, especially those rallying around issues rather than political parties. Brexiteers frustrated by Britain's stagnating process aimed at leaving the European Union will certainly be taking notice of what the Gilets jaunes have achieved in such a short space of time. The French protesters were furious at the escalating price of petrol and diesel and accused the government of adding to their misery by preparing to impose an ecological tax on fuel on the 1st of January 2019. This was the sacred policy of Macron's as he bid to reduce the nation's reliance on cars, bringing carbon emissions in line with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. A climb down proved inevitable, however, when thousands rioted, desecrating national monuments including the Arc de Triomphe. There were more than 400 arrests in Paris alone last Saturday as upmarket buildings and cars burned and shops were looted. Public order offences were the main tactics used by the Gilets jaunes. They also blockaded roads and fuel refineries destroyed speed cameras and toll booths and generally created mayhem. This generated an enormous amount of publicity for the cause naturally both in France and abroad. For three weeks we've seen a deep anger that comes from afar, said Edouard Philippe, Macron's crestfallen Prime Minister, as he claimed to understand the anger and announced a six-month suspension of the green tax on Tuesday. There will also be a half-year moratorium on other fuel taxes and on hikes in the price of gas and electricity. We must succeed collectively, he added, acknowledging that even those involved in violent affray have as much right to have an effect on the workings of government as anyone else. Crucially, neither Philippe nor Macron have had any significant dealings with the Gilets jaunes nor of any other politicians. On the contrary, those who have tried to piggyback on its success have been told where to go. These include Marine Le Pen, leader of the far-right National Rally, previously the National Front, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the hard-left firebrand and former minister who runs La France Insoumise, France Unbound. It is this sense of grassroots non-affiliation and indeed independence that has helped to make the Gilets jaunes such a powerful threat. Almost anyone with a grievance against the government can rise up against what they perceive as a corrupt and unresponsive Paris establishment. The vests themselves are a brilliant marketing tool. The brand garments were seen in large numbers in Brussels last Friday as Belgian Gilets jaunes braved tear gas and baton charges to take on riot police. When I trailed their Paris counterparts over three Saturdays, I spoke to supporters from Italy Spain and Britain itself as well as plenty of others from further afield. What is particularly worrying for Macron is that the suspension in taxes announced by his government is considered to be just the beginning by many gilets jaunes. One coordinator described his concessions, which were granted following emergency meetings, as crumbs, and said that far more tax cuts for ordinary workers were needed from the so-called president of the rich. This is why the movement has pledged to rally on the streets of Paris again this Saturday. This was published on the 4th. December. As their demands become more ambitious, their wish list contains everything from the resignation of Mr Macron to the destruction of the Fifth Republic itself so that it can be replaced with a more democratic Sixth Republic. It may all sound fanciful, but judging by the fear that the Gilets jaunes have clearly instilled in the very heart of the French state, activists across Europe, if not the world, may well start to think that anything is possible. 
there's another step to take in understanding, however, and that is that, yes, the political class does not represent the people. Ultimately, certain people will be in politics to make a difference and do what's right for the people. Some of them will be brought into the vibe, if you like, of politics in general. Some of them will be manipulated and some of them will just be ignorant. They'll make decisions that others around them would want them to make while thinking it's their decision, while thinking it's the right thing to do. And then there's a very few who are intelligent and have their own morals, but they're very few and they don't ever get to a position of power. Or if they do, they don't stay there for very long. But I'm talking about the political class in general. They don't represent the people ultimately. They represent the network they answer to, which is the network that really runs the world in society, which answers to the elite less than 1% or the deep, deep state. Politicians, not all of them, but many of them, and political leaders are simply in place to implement the agenda of that network, which is the agenda of the elite. The understanding that the political class does not represent the people has led to what's known as populism. And I talk more about populism in episode 38. Populism is a response to the ignorance from the political class towards the people for so long. The progressives in the PC mob complain about populist candidates coming to power because of their policies, like being against unceasing migration, for example, which anyone intelligent would be against. I'm not against helping people who genuinely need help, but as I've said before, you can't pour water into a glass forever and expect it not to overflow. And not everybody is from a family fleeing devastation. And the populist candidates are also against other policies which are against the progressives and the PC mob's values, but which resonate with many other people in Europe. And it's precisely because of the ignorance from the political class and the progressives and the PC mob towards facts and views of those against migration and against the European Union, as two examples, that has led to populist candidates coming to power. However, I would suggest that the populist candidates are held to as much scrutiny as the other candidates, the other political leaders and the other politicians. They too need to be scrutinised in the same way. I would also strongly suggest, however, that rioting and violent, aggressive protesting is not the answer. All that will do is give authority the excuse to install more security, surveillance and police presence. And if the protest is violent enough and big enough, more weaponry for the police. The system, the authority, the establishment, etc. wants rioting and protesting for that reason. Peaceful protest is far more effective. People getting together in large numbers, sitting down and refusing to move in crucial places and areas for the system where it depends on public cooperation to function and crucial areas like outside places of power, etc. Outside buildings, power. That will have much more of an impact than just protesting. Protest affects the police and authority in general. Protest affects the police and authority in general, whereas mass non-cooperation in crucial areas affects the system itself, and that's the most effective method of making a change, mass non-cooperation with the system. And that does not necessarily have to be expressed through protesting. It can be anything which means mass non-compliance with the authority, and anything happening to enslave, suppress, and control, and anything limiting freedom of speech. It has to be done en masse because individually it's easy for authority to respond to that, but en masse they can't because the people have the numbers. The power authority uses on us is the power we allow authority to have. When we take it back, the game's up for authority, the elite and their agenda, because it only survives because of ignorance and apathy. When people are informed and motivated, which will come largely from being informed and actually turn their awareness into action, then things can change. And the next story this week is 
public political perception. This is in the Daily Mail. Half of voters think politics is broken and only one in seven think the Tories and Labour represent the views of the public, new poll reveals. Half of voters think politics is broken, a new poll is found amid fresh signs that Brexit chaos is shaking the public's confidence in its politicians. The survey also found that just one in seven voters believe the Tories and Labour represent the views of the public. The damning results contained in a YouGov poll for the Sunday Times comes as Westminster is in turmoil over Brexit. Theresa May looks set to suffer a massive and humiliating defeat if she pushes ahead with a Commons vote on her deal on Tuesday night. Well, this was published on the 9th of December, Sunday, and Theresa May called off the Commons vote. She is facing a barrage of calls to tear up her deal and is considering delaying the vote and heading back to Brussels to try to squeeze more concessions out of the EU. The poll found that 48% of those asked said that politics is broken, while just 11% said they think it is working well. Westminster is awash with political plots and leadership rumours amid this Brexit disarray at the heart of government. Remainers are seizing upon the chaos to push for another referendum just two years after Britain's voted leave in the historic vote. And Brexiteers are also gunning for the Prime Minister's deal and demanding that she tears up the hated backstop plan and play hardball with the EU on the divorce bill. Cabinet Office Minister David Liddington and Justice Secretary David Gork have been holding the secret discussions with opposition MPs. They have also discussed options to push for a Norway-style deal, which would effectively keep the UK in the single market and customs union and keep free movement. So, more or less, keep the UK in the European Union then. The revelations reported in the Sunday Times will spark fury among Brexiteers who have warned of a plot by Remainer MPs to thwart Brexit, with the PM's plans plunged into turmoil civil servants have war-gamed two versions of the UK holding another referendum. The first is a straight choice between the PM's deal and remaining in the EU. Well, that's not much of a choice because both are basically remaining in the EU, except that only one of them is officially in the EU. That's the only difference. And the second will be a leave-remain contest with a second question asking them if they prefer the existing deal or a no-deal departure on World Trade Organization terms. Meanwhile, Defence Minister Tobias Elwood today hinted that he could back a second referendum in the future. He said, if Parliament does not agree a Brexit deal soon, then we must recognise that the original mandate to leave taken over two years ago will begin to date and will eventually no longer represent a reflection of current intent. One cabinet minister told the Observer that the PM was so committed to the deal that a second referendum could now be the only way of getting it. The revelations come a day after Amber Rudd said ministers can back a Norway-style deal if Mrs May's plan is voted down this week. What is the Norway plus Brexit plan which some MPs are backing? In the wake of a defeat on her deal, Mrs May would have 21 days to bring a new plan to the House of Commons, but an amendment tabled by Tory Remainer rebel Dominic Grieve and passed this week has given Parliament a platform to start dictating the terms. MPs will be able to spell out potential plans and vote on them, giving a strong indication of where opinion lies. Support is likely to gather around a Norway plus plan that has long been pushed by Tory backbencher Nick Bowles. Former Cabinet Minister Oliver Letwin said this week that he believes there is a majority for that style of relationship. Other senior figures such as Nicky Morgan have endorsed it, along with substantial numbers of Labour MPs. A group of Cabinet Ministers have been mulling it over as a full-back plan. It would effectively keep the UK in the single market with a customs bolt on to avoid a hard Irish border, and backers say it would keep Britain close to the EU while cutting contributions to Brussels. However, critics say it has the drawbacks of keeping free movement and tightly limiting the possibilities for doing trade deals elsewhere. The EU was also thought to have concerns about a the size of the UK joining the EEA, while other states in the group might be resistant. The EEA is the European Economic Area.
an international agreement which allows for the extension of the EU single market to non-EU member parties. If the Norway model was endorsed by the Commons, it would not be binding on the government, but it would have huge political force and it might be very difficult for ministers to face down the calls. Mrs May is unlikely to be able to put the policy in place as it breaks her often stated red lines. In the end, it might need a new government of national unity, perhaps led by a respected cross-party figure, to put the UK on course for Norway Plus with the prospect of a general election soon afterwards. Well, we've seen an absolute farce with the Brexit negotiations. Theresa May's Brexit deal, in inverted commas, in the negotiations, in inverted commas, where the European Union basically offers Brexit in name only, which was the most predictable outcome of these negotiations. This is what the European Union does. If they don't get the right result, a second referendum is manipulated into place or the negotiations are not negotiations at all, but leaving the country in name only. The goal is partly to delay for as long as possible to keep Britain in the European Union for as long as possible. So the changes in law and introductions into society on the elite's agenda are changed and introduced during the time before Britain leaves, if it leaves. Another goal of these negotiations being as dragged out and ever-changing as they have been is to make the people of Europe think twice about also wanting to leave. With all the delays and the constantly changing nature of it, the way people have grown tired of it in this latest farce of a deal from Theresa May, it's to say, do you really want this, people of Europe? Do you really? Incidentally, one of the people involved in trying to stop Brexit is George Soros who has a vast network of manipulation in 100 countries and he has pledged to donate another another 100,000 pounds in an attempt to stop Brexit. George Soros is involved along with NGOs, non-governmental organizations in manipulating the migrant crisis into Europe. I talk about that in episode 12. I've talked about Brexit before in episode 2, 3, 13 and 24 and other episodes, but those are the best episodes, I think, of just talking about Brexit in terms of Brexit. As far as politics in general, people have grown tired of the old politics, the politics where their concerns are not being addressed and they're being silenced by the fake liberal left, the progressives and the PC mob, and they want people in power who will address those concerns. This is where, as I said earlier, populism has come from. People want representation in politics so they don't feel they're getting at the moment with the old politics. The new politics, or a new politics, would involve politicians, heads of parties and political leaders standing for what they believe in, those that actually have any values in the first place. I'm obviously not talking about the Mays, the Camerons, the Blairs, the Bushes or the Trumps there, but leaders who actually have values and genuinely have beliefs. If they stood up and represented themselves rather than playing party politics, then that would be a start. Making statements and taking actions based on their own conviction and not what the rest of the party, at least the parliamentary party, if not beyond that, wants to say or do. There's another step to take beyond just not playing party politics. And this applies mostly to heads of parties and political leaders, and that's not playing elite agenda politics either. That would make a real difference. Some would say that this is wishful thinking, and up to now it has been. The idea that politicians and heads of parties and political leaders would only stand by their own convictions. Some would say, well, that's not going to happen. Well, well, if it's not, then that proves what I've said all along, that politics is not the answer. Politics is not how things are going to change. The people are where things are going to change from. But we are in a different world now. We're seeing a change in politics, driven by the people. So who knows where politics is going now? 
It may just be window dressing and everything basically carries on as normal. But it'll be interesting to see as these next few years pass what happens with politics, with the rise of populism and changing, obviously changing now, public political perception. We are in a different world now in terms of public political perception. We're not where we were 10, 20 years ago. And it'll be interesting to see how that expresses itself in the next few years. And the next story this week is public political perception. This is in the Daily Mail. Half of voters think politics is broken and only one in seven think the Tories and Labour represent the views of the public, new poll reveals. Half of voters think politics is broken, a new poll is found amid fresh signs that Brexit chaos is shaking the public's confidence in its politicians. The survey also found that just one in seven voters believe the Tories and Labour represent the views of the public. The damning results contained in a YouGov poll for the Sunday Times comes as Westminster is in turmoil over Brexit. Theresa May looks set to suffer a massive and humiliating defeat if she pushes ahead with a Commons vote on her deal on Tuesday night. Well, this was published on the 9th of December, Sunday, and Theresa May called off the Commons vote. She is facing a barrage of calls to tear up her deal and is considering delaying the vote and heading back to Brussels to try to squeeze more concessions out of the EU. The poll found that 48% of those asked said the politics is broken while just 11% said they think it is working well. Westminster is awash with political plots and leadership rumours amid this Brexit disarray at the heart of government. Remainers are seizing upon the chaos to push for another referendum just two years after Britain's voted leave in the historic vote. And Brexiteers are also gunning for the Prime Minister's deal and demanding that she tears up the hated backstop plan and play hardball with the EU on the divorce bill. Cabinet Office Minister David Liddington and Justice Secretary David Gork have been holding the secret discussions with opposition MPs. They've also discussed options to push for a Norway-style deal, which would effectively keep the UK in the single market and customs union and keep free movement. So, more or less, keep the UK in the European Union then. The revelations reported in the Sunday Times will spark fury among Brexiteers who have warned of a plot by Remainer MPs to thwart Brexit, with the PM's plans plunged into turmoil of civil servants of war game to two versions of the UK holding another referendum. The first is a straight choice between the PM's deal and remaining in the EU. Well, that's not much of a choice because both are basically remaining in the EU, except that only one of them is officially in the EU. That's the only difference. And the second will be a leave-remain contest with a second question asking them if they prefer the existing deal or a no-deal departure on World Trade Organization terms. Meanwhile, Defence Minister Tobias Elwood today hinted that he could back a second referendum in the future. He said, if Parliament does not agree a Brexit deal soon, then we must recognise that the original mandate to leave taken over two years ago will begin to date and will eventually no longer represent a reflection of current intent. One cabinet minister told the Observer that the PM was so committed to the deal that a second referendum could now be the only way of getting it. The revelations come a day after Amber Rudd said ministers can back a Norway-style deal if Mrs May's plan is voted down this week. What is the Norway plus Brexit plan which some MPs are backing? In the wake of a defeat on her deal, Mrs May would have 21 days to bring a new plan to the House of Commons, but an amendment tabled by Tory Remainer rebel Dominic Grieve and passed this week has given Parliament a platform to start dictating the terms. MPs will be able to spell out potential plans and vote on them, giving a strong indication of where opinion lies. Support is likely to gather around a Norway plus plan that has long been pushed by Tory backbencher Nick Bowles. 
Former Cabinet Minister Oliver Letwin said this week that he believes there is a majority of that style of relationship. Other senior figures such as Nicky Morgan have endorsed it, along with substantial numbers of Labour MPs. A group of Cabinet Ministers have been mulling it over as a fallback plan. It would effectively keep the UK in the single market with a customs bolt on to avoid a hard Irish border, and backers say it would keep Britain close to the EU while cutting contributions to Brussels. However, critics say it has the drawbacks of keeping free movement and tightly limiting the possibilities for doing trade deals elsewhere. The EU was also thought to have concerns about a country the size of the UK joining the EEA, while other states in the group might be resistant. The EEA is the European Economic Area, an international agreement which allows for the extension of the EU single market to non-EU member parties. If the Norway model was endorsed by the Commons, it would not be binding on the government, but it would have huge political force and it might be very difficult for ministers to face down the course. Mrs May is unlikely to be able to put the policy in place as it breaks her often stated red lines. In the end, it might need a new government of national unity, perhaps led by a respected cross-party figure, to put the UK on course for Norway Plus with the prospect of a general election soon afterwards. Well, we've seen an absolute farce with the Brexit negotiations. Theresa May's Brexit deal in inverted commas in the negotiations in inverted commas where the European Union basically offers Brexit in name only which was the most predictable outcome of these negotiations this is what the European Union does if they don't get the right result a second referendum is manipulated into place or the negotiations are not negotiations at all but leaving the country in name only the goal is partly to delay for as long as possible to keep Britain in the European Union for as long as possible so the changes in law and introductions into society on the elite's agenda are changed and introduced during the time before Britain leaves, if it leaves. Another goal of these negotiations being as dragged out and ever-changing as they have been is to make the people of Europe think twice about also wanting to leave. With all the delays and the constantly changing nature of it, the way people have grown tired of it in this latest farce of a deal from Theresa May, it's to say, do you really want this people of Europe? Do you really? Incidentally, one of the people involved in trying to stop Brexit is George Soros, who has a vast network of manipulation in 100 countries, and he has pledged to donate another, another £100,000 in an attempt to stop Brexit. George Soros is involved, along with NGOs, non-governmental organisations, in manipulating the migrant crisis into Europe. I talk about that in episode 12. I've talked about Brexit before. In episodes 2, 3, 13 and 24 and other episodes. But those are the best episodes, I think, of just talking about Brexit in terms of Brexit. As far as politics in general, people have grown tired of the old politics. The politics where their concerns are not being addressed and they're being silenced by the fake liberal left. The progressives and the PC mob. And they want people in power who will address those concerns. This is where, as I said earlier, populism has come from. People want representation in politics so they don't feel they're getting at the moment with the old politics. The new politics, or a new politics, would involve politicians, heads of parties and political leaders standing for what they believe in, those that actually have any values in the first place. I'm obviously not talking about the Mays, the Camerons, the Blairs, the Bushes or the Trumps there but leaders who actually have values and genuinely have beliefs. If they stood up and represented themselves rather than playing party politics, then that would be a start. Making statements and taking actions based on their own conviction and not what the rest of the party, at least the parliamentary party, if not beyond that, wants to say or do. There's another step to take beyond just not playing party politics. 
and this applies mostly to heads of parties and political leaders, and that's not playing elite agenda politics either. That would make a real difference. Some would say that this is wishful thinking, and up to now it has been. The idea that politicians and heads of parties and political leaders would only stand by their own convictions. Some would say, well, that's not going to happen. Well, well, if it's not, then that proves what I've said all along, that politics is not the answer. Politics is not how things are going to change. The people are where things are going to change from. But we are in a different world now. We're seeing a change in politics, driven by the people. So who knows where politics is going now? It may just be window dressing, and everything basically carries on as normal. But it'll be interesting to see as these next few years pass what happens with politics, with the rise of populism and changing, obviously changing now, public political perception. We are in a different world now in terms of public political perception. We're not where we were 10, 20 years ago. And it'll be interesting to see how that expresses itself in the next few years. And the next story this week is George Soros. I've talked before about Zionism, the elite kind, revisionist Zionism, and about criticism of Israel being jumped on from a great height. And why that is, I've explained in episode 10. We now have a ludicrous situation where criticism of George Soros is seen as anti-Semitic because he's Jewish. It doesn't matter what he is, it's what he does that matters. Apparently now you can't talk about the manipulation of George Soros, which I have before, without it being seen as anti-Semitic, which is just a technique used to try to silence exposure, which is just a technique used to try to silence exposure of Soros's manipulation in current affairs and the affairs of countries. So you can't criticize George Soros. So I'm going to criticize George Soros because there's a lot that he does to be critical about. This is in The Independent. University founded by George Soros forced out of Hungary on dark day for Europe. A university that was founded by billionaire George Soros said it had been forced out of Hungary in what has been described as a dark day for Europe. The Central European University described the decision an arbitrary eviction that violated academic freedom and confirmed plans to open a new campus in Austria. For nearly three decades, CEU has been a gateway to the West for thousands of students from ex-communist Eastern Europe, offering US accredited degree programs in an academic climate that celebrates free thought. The university, which is regularly ranked the best university in Hungary, said it would leave Budapest if it had not secured guarantees of academic freedom by the 1st of December. CEU's statement is the culmination of a years-long struggle between Hungarian-born Mr. Soros, who promotes liberal causes through his charities and the nationalist anti-immigrant government of Prime Minister Viktor Orban. CEU has been forced out, said CEU President and Rector Michael Ignatieff in a statement. This is unprecedented. A US institution has been driven out of a country that is a NATO ally. A European institution has been ousted from a member state of the EU. Arbitrary eviction of a reputable university is a flagrant violation of academic freedom. It is a dark day for Europe and a dark day for Hungary, CEU statement added. Professor Ignatieff told a news conference later that the CEU had received a clear and unequivocal welcome in Austria. The US said it was disappointed that CEU was unable to remain in Hungary. The departure of these US accredited programs from Hungary will be a loss for the CEU community for the United States and for Hungary. Heather Newark, spokesperson for the State Department, said in a statement. 
CEU's legal status has been in limbo for more than a year since changes to a higher education law that meant a foreign registered university could no longer operate in Hungary unless it also provided courses in its home country. Mr Orban's critics have said the legal changes deliberately targeted CEU and he has often accused Mr Saris of encouraging mass immigration into Europe, a change the philanthropist denies. Earlier this year, Open Society Foundation's Mr Saris's main funding network was also forced to leave Hungary. Well, first of all, George Soros does not fund anything unless there is a benefit for the elite and their agenda involved. He's very much like Bill Gates in that way. What's being kicked out of Hungary is not a university which operates with academic freedom, but a university which is there to instill in young people the values, in inverted commas, and facts of life of people like George Soros. It's a training ground for progressives and fake liberals who think they're liberal and about diversity and free expression, while destroying both. And it's a training ground for future political figures to go on and run society from the Soros perspective and the fake liberal perspective. It's very much like Oxford University in London here in Britain, turning out the leaders and powerful people of the future. This is an important point. For the elite's agenda to work, you don't need everyone in on the agenda. It wouldn't work if that was the case. Society is structured, no matter what organisation or institution you're looking at, as a pyramid structure, basically, of knowledge. At the top, you've got the elite who know the whole thing, and as you come down, you're meeting more and more people who know less and less and less. And we can see this with the corporate world, for example. Those at the top of a corporation know how everything works and how everything fits together and as you come down from the top of the pyramid you're finding more and more and more people who know less and less and less they only know their part in the whole picture but that's the structure through which the elite's agenda operates so if you look at politics for example only a tiny few will have some awareness doesn't mean that those in politics who are in the know will know the whole agenda they'll know their part in it some will know more, but it's only a tiny few. Everyone else will either be blackmailed, threatened, manipulated, or just naive, thinking they're doing the right thing, when actually they don't realise the bigger picture. You don't need everyone in on the agenda, and you don't need to manipulate everyone either. Only a tiny few, and it's those few who get to the positions of power, either in the party in power or another party, but still in the powerful positions in those parties that decide the policy which the rest of the party, in many cases, will just go along with, not least because they're thinking about their careers and their place in the party. When you look at the education system, those who get the top results in exams go out into the real world to become politicians, teachers, lecturers, professors, scientists, doctors, etc. And they're taken with them into these institutions, the core programming they've spent their entire formative years and beyond downloading. And they're running or operating within these institutions of state from that perspective. It's all about downloading a perception of the world and society that suits the establishment and the elite and their agenda. I've talked about the education system before in episode 21. The Soros universities are about downloading a perception of the world and society, the progressive mentality, the fake liberal left mentality, which thinks it's liberal when it's the opposite, which so perfectly suits the elite and their agenda. The reason the university is being kicked out of Hungary is because Soros has been kicked out of Hungary. I talk about George Soros and Hungary in episode 36. People in Hungary and the leadership of Hungary can see what Soros is and they don't want him having anything to do with Hungary. Thank you.
And the last story this week is Christmas. I guess it's only right that we have a festive story. This is in the Kansas City Star. A Nebraska principal angered parents and some teachers by sending out a list of Christmas symbols and activities that were not allowed in class from Christmas trees to caroling. Santa and Christmas items are not to be on activities or copies, Manchester Elementary Principal Jennifer Sinclair's Christmas memo said. We have varied religious beliefs in our school and it is our job to be inclusive. That didn't sit well with some parents and neither should it. If a school is going to be able to eliminate everything about Christmas, it may not stop there, parent Jenny Myers said, according to WOWT, which is a news channel in America. Parents asked for help from Liberty Council, a Florida-based nonprofit that says it works on First Amendment religious liberty issues. The Omaha World Herald reports, Liberty Council shared a copy of Sinclair's memo, but the school district declined to share what he had sent. Liberty Council is basically a law organization related to Christian religious issues. Liberty Council wrote to the school districts on November the 30th demanding the reversal of the comprehensive ban on all Christmas holiday symbols because it violates the US Constitution by showing hostility towards Christianity. Liberty Council did not call for Sinclair to be fired. In the spirit of Christmas, Liberty Council does not desire the removal of Principal Sinclair, the letter said, adding that the organisation is asking for only her compliance with the law, respect for the rights of others and respect for cherished holiday traditions. District spokesperson Cara Pachow said on Thursday that Sinclair has been put on administrative leave. District spokesperson Cara Pachow said on Thursday that Sinclair has been put on administrative leave, adding that the memo does not reflect the policy of Elkhorn Public Schools regarding holiday symbols in the school. KETV reports, which is which is another news channel in America. Sinclair had written in the memo that she wanted to make sure the public school, particularly around Christmas, was inclusive and culturally sensitive to all of our students. The memo appeared to be in response to confusion or disagreement about what was and was not allowed. The list began with Sinclair writing that she felt uncomfortable that I have to get this specific, but for everyone's comfort I will. Allowed under the short-lived directive, gifts to students, snowmen, snowflakes. Snowflakes, is that in reference to students or actual snowflakes, who knows? Could be both when you're talking about political correctness. Gingerbread people, sledding, hot chocolate, polar bears, penguins, winter garb, yetis and the character Olaf from the Disney movie Frozen. Not allowed. Santas or Christmas symbols on worksheets, Christmas trees in the classroom, elf on the shelf, singing carols, playing Christmas music, making Christmas ornaments as gifts, candy canes, red or green items, traditional Christmas colours, reindeer and Christmas videos and movies. In addition to reversing the Christmas ban, an attorney for the school district wrote to Liberty Council saying that he will work with staff to correct any erroneous communications and clarify any misunderstandings, the World Herald reports. According to Elkhorn Public Schools policy, religious symbols such as crosses, creches or menorahs may be used as teaching aids in the classroom provided that the symbols are displayed as an example of the cultural and or religious heritage of the holiday and a temporary in nature. Sinclair later apologised for sending out the memo widely rather than to just school staff. WOWT reports, I wanted to reach out and make sure our families understand what occurred and what has been done to correct the issue, Sinclair told parents. I understand that the information I initially provided was incorrect and I sincerely apologise for any confusion or concern this has caused and the negative attention this issue brings to the district in Manchester. Manchester, obviously, in America. The Liberty Council said it was ready to take legal action if the district did not reverse course the World Herald reports. The Southern Poverty Law Centre, a revisionist Zionist organisation, 
I talk about revisionist Zionism. Episodes 10 and 28. 10 and 28 and other episodes as well. The Southern Poverty Law Centre, a non-profit that monitors hate groups, classifies the Liberty Council as an anti-LGBT group, writing that in other instances it has advocated for anti-LGBT discrimination under the guise of religious liberty. Well, I've talked about LGBT and fluid gender and transgender in many episodes, just as I have with Zionism. And as far as transgender, I've talked about that in episode 8 and 26, most notably, in terms of explaining what it's about, what it's really about. Well, some people would look at this and think this is just more politically correct nonsense. And it is, but it's deeper than that, because with all the constant banning of traditional symbolism and religious iconography, it's actually leading to cultural revision, and removing traditional cultural symbolism is one way to achieve cultural and historical revision. And I talk about that in the last episode. The irony of all this is that Christmas is not originally a religious festival. It's not. It's originally a pagan festival worshipping Saturn, called Saturnalia, where sprigs of holly were hung, trees were decorated and gifts were given. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Even some religious symbolism is related to Saturn. For example, Jesus was said to have been crucified on a cross on Good Friday. Wasn't too good for him. Two days before Easter, which actually comes from the Babylonian goddess. There's a lot of Babylonian deities. Ishtar, who was said to have come to the earth on a moon egg. And then when you look at the Zulu law in South Africa, you see that they say the moon is an egg. Because they say two entities, Mwani and Mpanku, depicted with scaly skin like a fish, brought the moon to the earth and then emptied out the yoke until it was hollow. It's symbolic, not literal, because they only had the symbolism of the time to explain what they were trying to say. And it's from Ishtar's egg that we get Easter and Easter eggs. If you look at a cross geometrically, it's a flattened out cube. And a cube is a symbol of Saturn, especially the black cube. And what is it that religious believers of Islam are told to do at Mecca? Kneel down and pray in front of a black cube. And they're even told to pray in concentric circles. When you look at photos of them praying in concentric circles, it reminds you of a certain planet. Talking of crucifixion, Saturn is associated with death. So you've got crucifixion, killing, death, Saturn. On a symbol of Saturn, the cross flattened out cube. It's Saturn symbolism, not Christian symbolism or religious symbolism, in terms of its origin. Santa Claus is depicted with a white beard, and there's religious deities depicted with white beards. Well, the white beard again is a symbol of Saturn, because at one point it's said that there was an explosion of debris out of Saturn, which formed a luminous crescent, which was at different points around the planet as the planet moved on its axis, as Saturn reflected light at different points of the day, because Saturn, it's said, was in a different position. And this is where the white beard came from, as the crescent was at what you might call the bottom of the planet, if you were looking at it as a two-dimensional shape rather than three-dimensional planetary body. The crescent was at the bottom of the planet, and that gave rise to the symbolism of the white beard. Santa Claus is depicted as being red and white with black boots, well, two colours associated with Saturn and black and red. People who are offended by the Christian version of Christmas and the symbolism that goes with it well, it's not actually a religious festival in the first place anyway. It's a pagan festival because Saturn is a dwarf star, not a planet. Some say it was our prime sun at one point, and this goes back to what I said just now about Saturn being in a different position once. Many, if not all, the ancient 
sun gods, as Saturn gods. Christmas is a pagan festival through and through. It's not religious. Christianity picked it up and made their own version of it, but they didn't originate it. They changed it. They took a festival worshipping something that, whatever you think about the practice of worshipping a planetary body or a dwarf star, whatever you think Saturn is, at least we know it exists. At least we can see it. What Christianity did was take that festival, and they've got a story around it, based on someone being born, who it's debatable ever existed. In fact, I don't think did exist. I'm not religious at all, and neither am I a pagan, but the point is Christianity just picked it up and changed it. They didn't originate it. So those who are offended just need to realise there's nothing religious about Christmas at all, except in religious revisionism. And that's all it is, religious revisionism. If the story of Jesus and Christmas was true, then why is it just plagiarism of an earlier Babylonian story? Surely it would be its own unique story. Ishtar, also known as Queen Semiramis, this is where we get Great Queen Street from in London, where the Mother Lodge of Freemasonry is located, and that's not an accident. The real higher levels of Freemasonry know all this. Queen Semiramis was the mother of an entity called Nimrod, who later became Baal, also known as Bel, B-E-L, and El, E-L, is the name of a sun god. What a surprise. And Queen Semiramis also married Nimrod, her son. I know, nothing unusual there. When Nimrod died, Queen Semiramis declared that he would go to the sun and become the sun god Baal. Queen Semiramis then later was miraculously impregnated by the rays of the sun and gave birth through this process to a virgin-born son, Tamus or Ninus. And so in this way, father and son were one. Do you know, I, I, I think I've heard that somewhere before as well. If Christmas was originally a Christian festival, then why is the celebration of it and the symbolism of it so similar to Saturnalia? which massively predates the Christian version. It's religious revisionism, and thus there's nothing to be offended about. Now, I'm not saying that we should not celebrate Christmas. It means different things to different people. Why not respect them all? This is the problem with political correctness. It talks about diversity, but the diversity only goes one way. True diversity and respect allows all perceptions to be equally expressed, but as I said, political correctness is contributing towards the cultural and historical revision I talked about in the last episode. And that doesn't work with all ideas of Christmas being equally expressed, or all ideas of religion and other beliefs being equally expressed. The whole idea of political correctness is not true diversity and equality. It's censorship, and in cases like this story, contributing, not that the people involved will realise, to the cultural and historical revision I'm talking about and talked about in the last episode. Political correctness is basically revision of language, revision of discussion, and revision of culture and history. And the only way to avoid that revision is to speak and express whatever we feel. Otherwise, political correctness will get its way, and there will be no more free expression, only what political correctness deems acceptable to express. So that's it for this year. This is the final episode of 2018. It's been enjoyable for me. Hard work, but enjoyable. And also very informative for me as well. I've learnt a lot. I hope it's been informative and maybe even entertaining at times for you. I'm very pleased with what I've achieved so far and I look forward to pay-per-view 2019. I'll be back around mid-January. Until then, have a great Christmas and New Year and I'll talk to you soon. So that's it for this year. That's been the news. That's been the context and connections. That's been pay-per-view. More to come next year. 
Until then, goodbye.